please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There are times and seasons in all of our lives when we're especially tempted to doubt God's goodness. To believe that God takes no notice of our pain despite our best efforts to live according to his ways. In fact, it seems like our efforts to be faithful to God not only fail to profit us, but only bring us suffering and pain. And little of the joy or blessing or reward that God seems to promise. Meanwhile, the wicked, the arrogant, those who have no regard for God or for his ways, prosper. And everything's easy for them. They do well. They're having a good time. In fact, they seem to be rewarded for their wickedness. In those times of temptation, it becomes especially tempting to envy the wicked, to envy the arrogant. 
We look at the disparity between the lot God has given us in this life and the lot that God has given the wicked and, and we think it's not fair. I want what they have and in fact I deserve it. This is the place of temptation that this psalm was written from. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through this psalm and see if we can't unearth these same temptations in our own lives and then apply the psalmist's solution to our hearts. The psalm begins in verse 1 with the declaration that God is good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph is the author of this psalm. He starts the psalm where he ends his struggle. He's a man who has dealt with envy, who has dealt with doubt, who has dealt with temptation. And the truth that God is good has prevailed. It's a sure thing. God is good to those who are pure in heart. And Asaph knows it full well, although he's about to confess to us how much he doubted it and how close he came to stumbling. This opening statement, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, is a window into the nature of Asaph's struggle. The struggle he had with temptation. Casting doubt on the goodness and righteousness of God is one of the oldest and most subtle temptations of the devil. It's how he gets a foothold into our hearts. It's how he began to turn Eve's heart away from God in the garden. He said to her, did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It was a really subtle thing that he did. God had given Adam and Eve everything to eat. Every green thing, every, every bit of fruit in the whole world was theirs, except for one tree. But when Satan came to Eve, he managed to get her to focus on the one thing that God had chosen to withhold. And he got her to question, why exactly did God withhold that one thing? Was he trying to keep her down? Was he unwilling for Adam and Eve to be fully blessed? What good thing was it that God was denying them? What good thing that they deserved and had a right to. If God would deny them this good, it must be for evil motives. He must not be good. He must be unjust and unworthy of my submission and obedience. Though I'll be a God myself. The temptations we face have many different faces, but they all have the same substance. Charles Spurgeon writes, when... Men doubt the righteousness of God. There, their own integrity begins to waver. And so it was with Asaph. In verses 2 and 3, Asaph explains his troubles. And before we get into that, I just want to draw your attention first to the fact that Asaph explains his troubles and his temptations to us. And I want you to see how precious it is that he does it. But because as he explains to us, and it says to us, I was like a beast before God. He's, he's then able to help us. It should be an obvious application to all of us that God permits us to walk through temptations and trials so that we can help others through them. Not so that we can be precious with our wounds. Now, in verses 2 and 3, this is what he says. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling... My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Asaph's problem was that he envied the arrogant. He envied those who seek their own way, those who live without taking heed to God or to his law. He envied them because he saw their prosperity. Things go well for the wicked. So he begins to describe their prosperity in the following verses. He says they're healthy, they're fat, they have wealth, they have power, they can do as they please. They're not in trouble as other men. They don't even have pains in death. They don't suffer. And they are aggressively wicked. They plot destruction for others. They oppress the poor and the godly. They set their mouths against heaven, he says. They mock God. They live as though God does not see and that God, as though God will not hold them accountable. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? And yet, despite all of this wickedness, they still prosper. Despite their utter disdain for God, Asaph says this of them in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. It doesn't matter that they oppress the poor and the needy. It doesn't matter that they openly despise God. Nothing goes wrong for them. They live in constant ease. Or so it seems at least to Asaph's eyes. And Asaph took it personally. It wasn't just a cold philosophical question for him. It wasn't like he wasn't in a classroom debating the problem of evil. He took it personally because he had personally suffered in pursuing righteousness. He reasoned this way. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. In other words, Asaph had given himself to purity of heart and of hands. He not only guarded his steps and his outward actions, he had guarded his heart too. He had been diligent to pursue God's ways. And his reward? Constant suffering. Discipline, hardship. All day, every day, without any relief in sight. If you've been a Christian for long, you know this is standard fare for the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which means we'll face suffering. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. When Jesus calls men to be disciples, he calls them to bear a cross. The Apostle Paul describes his life as living in constant death. And at times, in the midst of suffering, the temptation to look at the prosperity of the wicked and the unfaithful and to be jealous is intense. And for us, the temptation comes on two fronts. First, there's the the temptation to be jealous of those who are total pagans and who who are just successes by the world's standards. And they don't have to be bothered by scruples about being honest or being upright in their business practices. These guys were the kids that you, th- you thought were cool in high school, right? They, it didn't matter what they had that you didn't have, right? They could have been smarter or prettier or funnier or more popular 
or more athletic or more ironic or more cynical or more jaded or they could be beating the system. It just didn't matter. They could have the car or they could have the clothes or the tattoos or, you know, access to the drugs or whatever. Permissive parents who gave them alcohol for their parties. It didn't matter what they had that you didn't have. It's that you didn't have it. They were also the kids that went on to college and they pledged at the frat or the sorority and they made the grades and they partied hard on the weekends. They always had a girl or a boy to be with. They got great jobs. They moved on to great careers and got promotions and here you are. Their whole lives are success stories. Success stories that you could never have for yourself because in one way or another, at least as, as you see it, God was holding you back. We look at their lives and we're tempted to think, well, God must not care. So I guess I won't either. That's the temptation we face on one side. And then there's another temptation on the other side that comes from within the camp of the people of God. These are the men and women who make a claim to godliness and they appear to be doing great work for God, but they've made serious compromises. They're not faithful, but they are successful. They're doing such great kingdom work and God appears to be blessing it. Everything goes their way. But they've sold the gospel short. They're unfaithful and they won't stand firm. We're tempted to think, well, it must not be a big deal to God then. It just must not matter to God. So I might as well give up my convictions. They obviously don't matter. Guess I was stupid to take faithfulness so seriously. Better give it up unless I want to spend my life as a miserable outsider. Now, is this, is this any of you? Is it you? Because it's me. I was talking to Amanda about this this past week. I just asked her, babe, who are you tempted to envy? And she didn't even have to hesitate. And you know what she answered? People without kids. People without kids? Why is that? Because their lives are easier. Because their lives are easier. That doesn't mean people without kids aren't godly. But for Amanda, giving herself to be a wife and a mom is a point of faithfulness to God. It's a point of sacrifice. And God has blessed us with three kids that neither of us would trade for anything. But I know many of you moms can relate to her. Right? She didn't even mention women with husbands who actually make money. Right? She's probably too smart for that. Because I'm going to be tempted to envy men who, you know, can have jobs that allow them to provide richly for their families. And be all depressed. Now, what that demonstrates is that at the places where God has called us to sacrifice, those are the places we're tempted to envy those who don't have to make the same sacrifices. So the question for you is, where have you made sacrifices? 
Where have you fought to exercise faithfulness to God? To keep your heart and your hands pure, only to find that God has not blessed you with the success and the ease that you think you deserve for it. That's the frustration that was bottled up inside Asaph. Because he had. He had sacrificed. He had worked. He believed God. He had fought to keep his hands and his heart pure. And all he got for it was suffering. While the wicked prospered. He says in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus. Behold I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, if I would have vented my frustration, if I would have given voice to my complaints, it would have made many to stumble. So he did wisely in bridling his tongue, but yet he says it was hard for him to understand. It was troublesome in his sight. It was difficult. It weighed on him. He didn't know how to deal with it. Until something happens. And then everything changed. Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused... You will despise their form. Asaph envied the arrogant until he came into the sanctuary for God, until he came into God's presence. Then he regained perspective and he saw their end. They only prosper for a time. Our life here is a short one. And this life is all that the wicked get. Let them enjoy what little they have now. It will soon be stripped from them. God has set them in slippery places, he says. They prosper and grow fat and arrogant in their prosperity. They fill up the cup of their wickedness. And he will surely cast them down to destruction unless they repent. There is a day of reckoning coming and in that day all will be set right. The only way to combat the temptation to envy the wicked is to come into the presence of the holy God who inhabits eternity. And to have our hearts and our minds renewed by God so that we can see and judge rightly. So we can have perspective. Asaph came into the presence of God and he wasn't taken up with things of this world any longer. He wasn't wrapped up in self-pity anymore. He saw the future of the wicked because he saw the holy one who's just and who is righteous and who is good. He didn't need to debate the happiness of the wicked any longer after that. Instead, he saw the judgment that was hanging over their heads. And then Asaph saw clearly enough to judge himself. In verses 21 and 22, he says this, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within... Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Asaph saw exactly what his problem was. He came into the presence of God and he knew that he had been a wicked fool and that his foot had almost slipped. 
he had been in real danger. Because the man who envies a fool is a fool. And is on his way to joining the fools in their fate. Asaph had envied fools who were headed for destruction. He had nearly been enticed into joining them in their wickedness. He allowed his heart to become embittered against God. You see that? I was embittered in my heart. His foot had almost slipped. Envying the arrogant and the wicked is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's tantamount to, call, to accusing God of evil. Asaph had come and he had teetered at the brink before God had brought him to his senses. Is that you? Have you allowed bitterness to, to control your heart? To seep in? Are you teetering on the brink? Come into the presence of God. Let your mind and your heart be overtaken with his glory. Dwell on his goodness, on his righteousness, on his justice, and on his truth. And consider the end of the wicked. Asaph compares them to a dream that's shaken off. God's aroused and it's just all over. Then they face judgment for their wicked deeds and the righteous are received into eternal glory. It was only the hand of God that kept Asaph from turning from him. He says this in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me. And afterward receive me to glory. It's God that guides our steps while we're here. And keeps us from slipping and keeps us from stumbling. He takes hold of our hand. He pulls us from the brink. And there's a reason that our steps are laden with trials and suffering. It's because God is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Something that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with. And that's the other part of it. We have to be taken up with the glory of God. And to know his goodness. And to set our hope fully on the glory to be revealed to us at that day. God guides us, he directs us, he holds us, he protects us. He's preserving us for that day. He's preparing us for that day. And occasionally, he allows us to walk up to the brink of destruction so that we'll know for certain that the wicked have nothing to be envied and we'll cling to him. And in clinging to him, we'll find him to be infinitely superior to the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And we'll be able to say with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And, on, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In the end, we do have something even in this life that the arrogant don't have. We have the nearness of God. We have peace of conscience and a sure hope of being received into his presence when we die. When our short few days of suffering here are over. 
We have life eternal with the God who made us to look forward to. And his nearness is our good. This is the glory of being a child of God. We face suffering for a time. For a time, it's hard. But it's only for a time. And during that time, we get to know and experience the nearness of Almighty God. In this life and forevermore, we get God himself. And we look to the day when when he looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because God does reward faithfulness. God will wipe away our tears. He will receive us to himself. And the wicked he'll bring to a swift end. They'll be gone. Our business is to put our heads down, to be faithful, to take refuge in the Lord. To tell of all of his works because he has done great things. And to not envy the arrogant and the proud. He is able to keep us from stumbling. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be near to us and that you would help us. Father, open our eyes to see and behold the glory that is yours. Cause us to to have perspective, Father, to see the end. And to lay our, our hopes, to lay our treasure in heaven. Father, we need you to hold us and to guide us and to direct us and to keep us from stumbling. Please do this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.